Welcome to the Food and Faith Podcast, conversations from the soil and around the table with your co-hosts, Anna Wolfenden, Derek Weston, and Sam Chang. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to the Food and Faith Podcast. This is Derek, and today we have a conversation that Anna and I had with Kelly Nikandea. This is a part of our Just Kitchen series, our book project, which we'll be releasing next year. Kelly Nikandeha is a liberation theologian, author, and deputy director of Communities of Hope, a community development enterprise in Burundi. Her current book, The First Advent in Palestine, Reversals, Resistance, and the Ongoing Complexity of Hope, is available in stores today. Before we jump into today's show, just want to remind you of two quick things. First, I've been teaching an adult education class on food and race entitled The Color of Food. It's been a great study for adult Sunday school classes or small groups. It's also been taught on Zoom, but if you're in the Baltimore area, I'd be happy to come to you. For more info, you can go to foodandfaith.org. Lastly, a reminder that we have a Patreon where you can support the work of this podcast. Every little bit really does help. You can go to www.patreon.com slash foodandfaithpodcast. All right, let's listen to our conversation with Kelly Nicodea. Kelly, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, it's a pleasure to join you both. So we're going to start where we always do and ask you, um, what is your geography? What are the uh, lands, the places, the people, the foods, music, culture, whatever, however you want, wherever you want to go with that, that have shaped you to be the person that you are? Well, I am a Southern California girl. So my initial uh, geography that shaped me was Southern California, uh, beach communities in particular. So I grew up with a daily diet, I think, of avocados, artichokes, and albacore. My dad was a deep sea fisher, and so would always bring fresh albacore, and he would grill it up, Mm. um, you know, guacamole. That was the only thing my mom knew how to do with avocados. So we had lots of guacamole (laughs) and steamed artichokes. I mean, so, I mean, that really is kind of where the origin story in terms of food and growing up in Southern California, tortillas were my daily bread and still are. Um, When I come back from Burundi, because I live between countries, when I come back, one of the first things I always have to do is grab some tortillas to feel like I'm at home. So I'd say that that is kind of the initial uh, for me was starting off with that kind of food culture. Uh, I lived in Santa Barbara um, for my college and post college years. And I think that's where I fell in love with food. Mm -hmm. Uh, My mom herself was not a great cook. And so I, was introduced to a lot of foods in a way that was not appealing. Uh, Everything in the crock pot, all the aromatics, the same, never any spices. And so everything tasted the same and it was just poured over pasta or rice. So to come to Santa Barbara and the food culture there was just, I mean, farmers markets and um, a thriving restaurant community and uh, the little local cooking school that I uh, took advantage of. And all of a sudden I realized, oh my gosh, I love asparagus. I love cauliflower. Like when things were cooked well, I realized there was a whole new array of foods opened up to me. And so Santa Barbara is a real uh, key point in my own development of, of really loving food and learning how to cook it well. I worked with a, a somebody who has authored many cookbooks and got to be a recipe tester. And so there again, learning from That's a nice job. How to, right? <laughs> learning how to cook from somebody who knows and being in her kitchen and um, seeing how she arranged things. And, you know, she would sometimes watch me cook her recipe and then say, okay, why did you do that? 
you know, because she's thinking about how do I describe it for a cookbook? But for me, it's like, oh, okay, well, I did it because you said this and, you know, getting that correction and that interaction um, was, I finally learned how to cook and I've been cooking ever since. So you've said a couple of things that I, I want to circle back to um, because we, one of the questions that we've been uh, really having a, a fun time uh, discussing is the geography of the kitchen that in which you grew up. And so you're, you've kind of already told us a little bit about that kitchen, but um, say a little bit more about what was the kitchen like? What, what was the feel of the kitchen where you grew up? I mean, was it, was it just that she, your mom wasn't a great cook or was it a place that she didn't like to be? Was it a, was it a, was it a chore for her? Tell us a little bit more about your, your kitchen growing up. Sure. My mother kept an immaculate home, still does, spotless. And the kitchen was just utilitarian. It was, it was cook and clean it and get it back to spotless as quickly as possible. So there, was, there wasn't a sense of lingering and enjoying the process and taking um, you know, pleasure in the sensory part of cooking. It was very, like I said, very utilitarian. I mean, the only thing she ever put in that crock pot was some kind of a meat and you know, carrot, celery, onion. That's it. Mm-hmm. There was never an array of spices. There was never, there were all those things that now are so vital to my kitchen were absent. I think the closest we got to feeling any, I ever felt to any joy in the kitchen at uh, growing up was actually when my dad would take that fresh albacore that he had you know, pulled out of the ocean and he'd put it on the grill. Now, no embellishments. It wasn't like he put any kind of a rub or any kind of a marinade, but there was something about him opening up that grill and putting the fish on it and getting the char marks. Like that was the closest I think I felt to, oh, this is fun. We're outside. He's, I don't love grilling personally. I, it's not part of my repertoire, but I have really fond memories of my dad having more joy when it came to, you know, cooking outdoors than I, than I do with my mom. For her, it was not something she enjoyed. She enjoys it a little more now in her retirement, in part because I took what I learned in Santa Barbara and started cooking for her. And that kind of got her interested in her older years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, growing up, it was very utilitarian, very plain. It was salt and pepper and not much else. So really guacamole was about, you know, that and steamed artichokes were kind of, those really were the high points. <laughs> what is your kitchen like now? Um, oh, tell God. us, tell us um, that you said the, the contrast. Um, sure. You, you have spices, but we oh. guess it's your current kitchen. Well, I mentioned I live between two places. So we do development work, community development work in Burundi, which is a small country in East Africa. And then we have a home here in Arizona which is not my, Arizona is not a natural place for me, but here we are. Uh, But I go back and forth. So I've just come back from a seven month stint in Burundi. And while I'm in transit, I'm already putting together my spice order. I need the fresh za'atar from Palestine. I need sumac. I need um, all the peppers, Mexican, you know, pekin peppers. I need um, my Aleppo pepper. I need Korean peppers, like all the peppers, you know, I need all of the spice mixes and dried peppers. Um, So I, I use tons of spices in my cooking, predominantly 
uh, I cook mainly Mexican, Italian, and Palestinian foods. Those are the cuisines I lean into. Uh, so lots of spices and uh, vinegars and pomegranate molasses and uh, date syrup and those kind of things to embellish um, and enhance. And I love condiments. I mean, right away when I got here, you know, preserving lemons, um, making my first batch of shata, which is a Palestinian fresh chili condiment. Um, it's like I have to get all of that going, you know, pickled onions, pickled carrots. I want all the fresh condiments. So I do the opposite of my mother. I you open my refrigerator and it's all these different, you know, mason jars full of different uh, concoctions. And I make fresh lebne every week, which is a a strained yogurt dip that they use in the Middle East. So, you know, I, I hang it every Sunday night and have fresh lebne all throughout the week. Uh, so yeah, I have a lot of fun in the kitchen. But it sounds like um, some contrast too, is that it's not just a utilitarian place. What are some of the like words that, I mean, some of the words that come to my mind as you're describing it are like, it seems like a place like a vibrancy and you'd want to hang out, but also like, um, I'm curious for you, like what, what does the kitchen feel like or or mean to you in your daily rhythm and sure. and life and if it's not just utility right. um if I were to pick a word, I think for me, the kitchen has become a place of embodiment. So I, on the Enneagram, am a five. So I live in my head. I'm very comfortable there, very cerebral. I love to read and to write and to, to play with ideas and constructs, et cetera. But I get into Dara the kitchen. Derek doesn't know anything about that. <laughs> oh, come on, Derek, you feel me, right? Oh, I totally feel you. <laughs> So when I get into the kitchen, it's like where I'm able to drop down into my body mm-hmm. and it's my five senses. It's the color of the peppers. It's the sound and the rhythm of chopping on a good cutting board with a heavy knife. It's the aromas of, you know, the baharat that I put in the, in the rice. It's, it's all of the, it's like my senses come alive and I get out of my head and get into my body. Um, and I prefer to be alone in the kitchen because it really is that I like to be with others at the table, but in the kitchen, there's very few people that I cook well with. Um, it's a, it's almost a very intimate thing. I could think of two people that I really enjoy being in the kitchen with, but most of the time the kitchen is my space. Mm-hmm. And then when I bring it to the table, that's where, you know, my family or my friends, we all sit and eat together. And I love the community around the table, but the kitchen is kind of my place. I pray there. I remember there. I reflect there based on the things I'm cooking. And yes, it's, it's very much a space that's used. And I mean, I tidy up after, but I'm not concerned about a kitchen being spotless. Like my mom is, I want it to be functional and useful and it's full of little things I love you know a Turkish pepper mill uh, you know mortar and pestle that I love a teapot that I brought back from Palestine that I love like it's also even the kitchen itself um, is full of little things that bring me joy so it's a it's a happy place for me I resonate as as a fellow five I resonate so strongly with 
with that idea. Uh, and I don't know that I've actually articulated that way of, of when I get to cook that I am very much engaging my senses in a way that is getting me out of my head and into my body. And, and so I, I just kind of, I really, I really love that, that imagery. I'm just kind of curious. Burundi is probably a place that most of us, you know, don't know a whole lot about. What's the, what's the food scene difference um, between your, your kitchen in Burundi and your kitchen in Arizona? Are they, are they drastically different places? I, I kind of imagine that they are. They are. So uh, Burundi is one of the most underdeveloped countries, according to the UN metrics. Uh, it definitely is one of the most underdeveloped in East Africa. And so when you're in Burundi, you really still get a taste of what it was like, you know, 50, 60 years ago. There's, they're getting more connection with the West, but most Burundians still live a pretty, what we would consider um, kind of primitive in terms of, you know, they cook on an outdoor, we call it an igibora. It's an outdoor charcoal clay pot. So most cooking happens outdoors. They're, they don't do indoor. They have indoor kitchens if you're middle class, mm. but even so they're almost more for show. You still cook outside mm. um, and you have a little grill. It's like a, almost like a hibachi, you know, where you grill your meats if you have enough money for meats. And my husband grew up in extreme poverty. So when we talk about less than $1.25 a day, that was his existence growing up. Um, and so that kind of a diet, which is still what I'd say 90% of Burundians live off of, is um, cassava flour, which makes a sticky bread, which fills you up, but it doesn't give you a lot of nutrition. Um, tomato sauces that are thinned every single day. So by the end of the week, it's basically just tomato, you know, red, red water, but that's the sauce. Uh, lots of beans. So you, they do get nutrition from beans and other veg, you know, some vegetables like yams and potatoes. Um, but it, it's kind of slim pickings, actually. You know, every, every so often you can get some grilled meats, usually goat. Uh, sometimes beef or chicken. Uh, so it's a very different kind of diet. Now we live more of a middle-class existence just by nature of being, um, my husband and I and our four, our two kids, all four of us are dual citizens. And that puts us kind of in a different space. So we are a little more middle-class there. We do have an indoor kitchen, but even I don't cook a whole lot there because it's, because it's so different. Um, we have somebody who cooks for us and I, over the years have just leaned into it that when I'm there, I, I let our Burundian friends cook and I enjoy the cuisine they make. And then when I come here, I enjoy what I make because when I tried in the early days to take my favorite utensils and to take my spices, I would get so frustrated um, because the refrigerator would go out because there wasn't enough electricity or I'd worked really hard to source all these ingredients um, across town. And then, like I said, electricity went out and I couldn't cook on the stove and it, it, it got to be so frustrating. I'm like, this is not what food should be about. <laughs> so when I'm there, I just enjoy what they cook. And then I, I enjoy cooking when I come here. So you use some words that we have been um, sitting with in terms of what does it mean to, to pray in their kitchen? What does it mean to remember in the kitchen? What does it mean to reflect? What is spiritual practice in the kitchen? Um, and I just would love to, if you're willing to hear more of, um, you talked about embodiment. So like, what does that look like, feel like, um, and thinking about if we were to be observing you in your kitchen, 
not oh. cooking with you. <laughs> but you know, if, if I was like, yeah, as an outside observer, like how, how would I know that your kitchen is a place of spiritual practice is a place of engagement and, you know, taking that a step further, how could others who are looking to have our kitchens be more of a place of, mm-hmm. um, of spiritual practice, of intention, of awareness. Sure. Um, how how might we learn from you and, and your practices? Well, I don't, I don't know if it would necessarily be to learn from me, but I think the ways in which we all cook and pray are so kind of indigenous to our own souls. Um, but I know, I remember early on, I had a, a couple of friends who were going to live in Spain for a year. They were trying to figure out what they wanted to do with their life, a young couple. And and so I committed to buy uh, Spanish olive oil for a year. So every time I reached for the olive oil, which is multiple times a day, seeing that it was a, a Spanish olive oil always brought them to mind. And so I found that as I was, you know, putting the olive oil in a pan or putting it in a pesto or putting, I would think of them. And thinking of them brought me to, to even if it was just a, a, a one word or a one sentence prayer for them. But to me, that was a simple way of keeping them close by making it part of my daily life, which so much of it is in the kitchen. And even today, every now and then when I grab Spanish olive oil, you know, I, I still think of them and, and keep them in my prayers. They've now gone on to become lawyers, both graduated from Harvard, working hard to do good in the world. Um, and I feel like, oh, you know, my prayers were part of, you know, them making their way and finding how they could give to their communities. Now that I do. So I started doing a lot more Middle Eastern cooking during COVID. Uh, I was working on a book on the first advent in Palestine. And I was supposed to be in Palestine for advent. I was going to stay at a little inn for three months and write from the top of star street, but then COVID hit and I couldn't go. So I started working with a chef from Bethlehem and he would give me recipes and introduce me to ingredients. So all through COVID, I cooked almost exclusively Palestinian or Middle Eastern influenced dishes So a lot of chickpeas, right? And I'm one of those people who's just finicky enough that I don't like the skins on my chickpeas. (laughs) Most people don't mind them for whatever reason. It's worth it for me to pick them off. But what I found is that, um, you know, a few times a week as I would skin the chickpeas, that motion is actually like the rosary beads. So I'm a Catholic girl by <laughs> my, my mother church is the Catholic church. And as I would skin the chickpeas, which, you know, takes a little bit of time. It, the motion was like praying the rosary. And all of a sudden it became the time I prayed for my friends in Palestine by name and, and by region And so now I can't skin chickpeas that it doesn't automatically put me into a place of praying. So, I mean, those are some of the ways in which prayer has just kind of moved into my kitchen. I mean, and and certain dishes that I make, you know, I, I love to make a pomegranate salad and I, the recipe came from a friend of mine in Jerusalem, but 
my time in Jerusalem is you can't have pomegranates without oranges. You know, they have all these beautiful stands of fresh juices and there's towers of pomegranates and oranges and you can have one or the other or both. And I would always have, give me both. I want pomegranate and orange juice together. Well, that now infuses the, the salad I make. You know, it's a bulgur wheat with pomegranate molasses and mint and parsley, pomegranate seeds, orange zest. And every time I make that, it's a remembrance of my time in Jerusalem and my friends in Jerusalem. Like the memories are connected to that. So, you know, to me, memory is, is very close to prayer. That if somebody comes to mind, if a people or a place or a person comes to mind, I end up praying for them in, in one way or another. So those are just some of the ways uh, that it happens for me in the kitchen. I love that. You know, I am particularly thinking of the olive oil connection and with your, your Spanish friends, uh, you know, we went, my wife and I went to Greece 2019 and, you know, we didn't do any, obviously didn't do any, we were on a tour. We didn't do any cooking there, but we bought some olive oil while we were in Greece. And I've had that experience of thinking of the people that I traveled with thinking of the people that uh, I met on the trip and, and some of whom we've, we've become really good friends with. And like, as I cook with that olive oil, like that brings their faces to mind, that brings their stories to mind. And, 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 you know, there, there are these moments of, of like, yeah, I, 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 you know, whether it's a, just kind of a, I hope they're doing well. I, you know, I, I wonder what, what's, what's going on with them. Uh, that can be a part of the process of cooking. That can be a, that, that little reflection that can be really a, a deep connection that happens with people. That's, that's really. And then we're not so alone in the kitchen because we have all these friends that we bring back to mind as we're, as we're cooking. Yeah. My favorite olive oil though, and you might know this from having previewed the book uh, is I, I have a dear friend, uh, Tahani, who lives outside of Ramallah, uh, really off the grid in the West Bank. And uh, the last time I was there, I was able to, I came during the olive harvest and she's like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm not going to be able to take you to my favorite restaurant in Ramallah. You know, we're going to be, we're going to be harvesting. I'm like, I would like to harvest with you. And she's like, it's really hard work, Kelly. I don't think you're going to be cut out for it. <laughs> so I was able to go and find where she and her family were and spend like a 10 hour day um, with her and 20 of her closest relatives um, harvesting olives the way that I, I think the technology has not changed, you know, mm -hmm. handmade ladders and little tiny hand rakes and uh, her brothers all wearing their keffiyeh as they climb up and, you know, shake out the trees and all the olives falling down onto the tarp and, you know, all of us women sorting them. And I mean, it was like I stepped back in time. Like they've been doing, this is how they've been harvesting olives forever. forever. And then uh, at the end of the day, we were at her house having coffee and, uh, She's like, would you like to take some olive oil home with you? Because they had harvested olives from her mother's uh, grove a couple days prior, and it had gone to the mill where they crush it. And she had just gotten her fresh, I mean, like not even 24 hours had that those olives been pressed. Wow. I said, well, I'd love to take a little bit, a little bit. Mm -hmm. Nope. She gets out an old Coke, like, you know, those one liter Coke plastic <laughs> that they had emptied out and cleaned. She, her son takes it 
to the her mother's house, comes back with this one liter bottle of this golden fresh olive oil. I I have oh never had anything that peppery, bright, fresh. I mean, I I wouldn't let anybody else use it. I would. I was. <laughs> I was so stingy with it because it was the most. I mean, I mean, and it was a connection of the memory of us yeah. all being there on a similar field a couple of days later, and her mother sharing that much of her fresh olive oil with me. I mean, that was. I can't still can't believe I got it back to Burundi without it, you know, breaking in the suitcase. But, oh, you know, I, that will be my favorite. All I can't imagine ever having anything better than that. Yeah. I mean, even this just the story kind of makes it precious in, in, in its own way. Um, but I, I can't imagine that you'll ever find a fresher olive oil. I don't think so. Unless I go back for another harvest, which I told her when I come back, I'm coming back for the whole week. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and you're leaving with a gallon of Well, it makes me, it just um, touches for me what happens in my own experience when um, I've either grown the food myself that so I'm cooking or I have, you know, done that tracing work of like, oh, this comes from the local farm where I went and picked it up or this, you know, this meat is from, like, you know, a friend who raised it and butchered it and you know that kind of connection piece and I think the thing that's striking to me is that you tell these beautiful stories about you know the, the olive oil or just the you know the, the like intimate connection you have with particular part particular foods in your kitchen that you're using to prepare meals um what strikes me is that's actually true of like every bit of produce that we bring in every piece of meat of dairy, like any food that we are preparing actually has that intricate of a story. And some yes, are even longer and more complicated. And, and so often we don't actually know the people and the places and the transportation and the, 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 the. Um, and it just, I think there's such a, a hallowing of you know that olive oil I feel like there's a there's a hallowing of it in the telling of the story and it makes me wonder you know what are we missing in that we don't know the story of so much of our right. food and is that a way that we bring the attention to to the sacred to to intention back into our kitchen is learning and telling the stories of what it is that we're cooking right and i i mean i've been very blessed to connect with people who in the region who love to cook so my friend dahani taught me how to make makluba which is the palestinian traditional dish it, it literally means upside down because you take the pot you know and you put the meat in the bottom and then you layer it with vegetables and then you put the rice but when you then you turn it out onto a tray. You, you literally have to flip it. So then the rice is on the bottom and the cascade of vegetables and the meat on top. But she taught me how to make that recipe with, you know, her family's mix of vegetables and spices and the way that they do it. Chef Fadi in Bethlehem, you know, when I first discovered pomegranate molasses, I'm like, what do I do with it? 
And so he was sharing his family recipes of this is what we do with uh, pomegranate molasses. Or when I discovered preserved lemons, I'm like, chef, what do I do with this? He's like, okay, here's my favorite condiment, you know, that you can use with preserved lemons. And every time I make it, I think of him and his mother and the story he told me about how she created this little condiment. Um, So yeah, it connects us in such a particular way. And a good cookbook, a good, well-written cookbook, I find will do the same. Mm. where they actually aren't just giving you recipes, but they really are connecting you to the story or the region where these ingredients or these recipes have come from. So a a well-written cookbook, because we know there are terrible ones, but a well-written one um, can help if you don't have the personal connections, can still give us some sense of the story and the history. That was one of my big discoveries um, when we when we first started thinking about this book project. I, I started collecting cookbooks and really found that there was, like you said, the good ones mm-hmm. are so narrative. Yes, um, it's not just about it's not just about you know putting the ingredients together in the correct order. It's the fact that food and, and um, the act of cooking connects us to story yes. and it connects us to family story. And it connects um, Edna Lewis is one of the authors whose couple of her cookbooks I, I bought I and mean, she's, you know, a Southern cook. And so a lot about the South and a lot about um, black cooking in the South and, um, and, and all of the, all of the really good cookbooks I've had, I, I've found have, just these beautiful narratives in them and it, it, i i love the way that there's this invitation to be transported yes. in your cooking there's this invitation to let it carry you to another time to another place that's been one of the the surprise ahas for me in the in the midst of working on this project of of um really being teleported mm-hmm. um, in the process of cooking and, and realizing that people who who deeply care about food and deeply care about cooking are teleported. Um, and so, like you said, it's, it's, it's even if you're cooking alone, you, you find that you're not alone because yeah. you're surrounded by these stories and, and these people whose lives well, um, touch this food. And when I couldn't be in, in Bethlehem for Advent, my kitchen was the the way that I could still stay in connection, Mm. you know, where every week chef was giving me new ingredients to experiment with and family recipes. And my kitchen smelled like his kitchen Mm. because I had those ingredients. You know, I stopped cooking almost everything else. Mm. Um, And so at least I created a little space where, okay, I can't physically be there because of COVID. But my kitchen smells like olive oil and za'atar and Aleppo pepper and lemons. And it it at least allowed me to kind of, for me, part of writing and and trying to describe a place is, you know, how do you communicate those sensory signals so that a reader can somewhat join you in a particular place? And, And so having to fill my own kitchen was a way that I was hoping that that would infuse into the writing. Um, I wrote a book that, that Palestine played a big part of that. And I wanted the reader to feel 
like they were kind of there that they could walk along some of those paths. Uh, so I really, I needed, I needed to be transported in my own kitchen in the hopes that I could then bring the reader along with me. So I agree. Uh, um, and this was the first book I wrote where I ever, I, I had a cookbook in the footnote. <laughs> mm, nice. <laughs> yeah, that's great. <laughs> I do want to talk about the book because um, um, I've had a chance to read it. So the book is The First Advent in Palestine, Reversals, Resistance, and the Ongoing Complexity of Hope. Um, and it's it's a lovely book. It's a challenging book. And I do think that you actually, I felt transported as I was reading it. I felt like I could I could see, hear, smell um, Palestine in some ways that I hadn't before. Um, so I, I, I'm always interested in, in kind of like, what's the, where's the origin of this book? What, what made you want to write this particular book? And, and maybe even write this particular book in this particular time. Yeah. Well, I, I've been a student of, of Israel-Palestine for close to 30 years now. And I think uh, for me, the first time I, I think it was during the first intifada, uh, when the Middle East was popping up in our nightly news. Uh, and I was like, oh, I should read a book and learn about that. Whatever is going on over there in the Middle East, um, which I grew up in. And my mother church is, is, is the Catholic church, but my parents moved into evangelical spaces. And so a lot of my formative years happened in evangelical spaces. And there was lots of fascination with the Holy Land and Israel and the Jews. And then I read this book as a young adult and I realized there are Palestinian people. Like there was this whole group of people that I never knew. Nobody ever for all their talk about the Holy Land and nobody ever talked about Palestinians and that they had this deep connection to the same land and were partners in this space. And it was like the scales fell off my eyes. And I was like, I can never think about this part of the world without including them. And so I think, you know, I read every year I read a couple books and then a half dozen books and then a dozen books every year. I mean, it kept increasing just my fascination with this region, the religions, the, the geography, the history, the challenges to have peace when you have two people who have both been equally trauma, well, deeply traumatized um, and sharing a same place, but different hurts and how do they live together or don't live together well. Uh, so I started traveling there late I think 2017 was the first time I actually got to go to the region. And then I went the next year and then I went the next year and had COVID not happened, I would have gone again and just fell in love with these people and with this place. Uh, so I think that's the Palestine piece for me just came out of a sense of once I once I knew that there were Palestinian people part of the story, I always wanted to make sure I I kept them part of the story. I did my level best to be in solidarity with them. Um, but I also fell in love with the place in a way that even though I live in Burundi, I don't feel the same deep affinity for Burundi that I feel in Palestine for whatever reason, right? Uh, this just is a place that agrees with me in some ways. Um, and then I think for the Advent piece was just, I've always loved Advent in the church calendar, that time when we we move towards uh, Christmas. We move towards uh, the arrival of God into the world. But as I got older and I understood the hurt of the world, 
both living in a poor country like Burundi, but even the hurts in our world here, um, you know, the xenophobia, the racism, the violence in our own country here. I found that when I would approach Advent, I actually came with a sense of darkness and heaviness. And I often felt very alone in that. Everybody else was like, red cup day at Starbucks, twinkle light, <laughs> we're going to start playing Christmas music in October. Like, and I, I would have this opposite feeling of heaviness and sadness, recognizing what wasn't yet saved, what wasn't yet redeemed, what didn't seem to be touched by the arrival of God yet. And I felt like I was kind of an Advent anomaly. Everybody else was getting excited and anticipating, and I was feeling this sense of doom and darkness. And so I think there was a part of me that wanted to explore that um, to either fix it, I should be more joyful, or understand why do I feel this way on the eve of Advent? And in that exploration, which I, I went deep into the Gospel of Luke and Matthew, uh, because those are where we get these gospel stories, I actually found that I am not so much an anomaly, that there was a lot of pain and trauma and suffering that that, that was on the, the eve of the first Advent. And so I felt like, oh, I'm actually in sync with... You know, that when we allow ourselves to feel that and lean into the hardship, we actually are, we are leaning into Advent because that's where it started. And then maybe we have a different way of receiving the arrival of God when we recognize that it was a, it was a response to the hurt and trauma um, of the time. And I, I believe it still is. So those, those things connected my own journey with Advent and my, my, solidarity my my commitment to be in solidarity with my palestinian friends and they just kind of came together that resonates with me so strongly i'm also a person who i'm a bit of a grinch uh, around the holidays uh, <laughs> is is what i've been told but uh, but uh, you know i don't i don't easily swing into that holiday mode and and i think that i i I appreciate this book so much because, you know, we, we talk about, you know, Christ coming to save us and, and, and for the people of Palestine in that time, that salvation, like the circumstances from which one would need to be saved were very real. They were economic, they were political, they were, they were, they were the, the foundations of life. They were, they were oppression. They were persecution of all kinds. And, and you have, you've, you've really um, done a beautiful job of, of drawing the parallels between what was going on in Palestine in the first century and what's happening in Palestine now and being able to kind of connect those dots of this is a story that's ongoing for the Palestinian people. This is and, and, and actually, in some ways, the what's happening in, in Palestine now is a continuation of that story that would have been happening during the first advent. Well, and I, I feel like the more you understand what happened the first advent, the politics, the violence, the exploitive economics, the more relevant it sounds to what we are living through today, whether we're in Palestine or mm. um, in the United States or in Burundi, um, all of a sudden it becomes so much more relevant uh, because I think we actually have not followed the Advent admonitions to their logical mm. end. <laughs> mm. And so we have to keep waiting for God to arrive again and again because we are not doing the work 
work of, I think we're a little remiss in subverting the empires of our day and really embodying the kind of peace that God invites us into. But that's just my perspective. I, I, I'm right there with you. <laughs> hearty amens from us. Yes, absolutely. I was also very pleased as I, as I read this book um, that it, it there were there were actual food things to talk about. <laughs> oh, thank goodness. Um, what I mean, first off, one of your main characters is is the chef that you've talked about, and right. and talking a little bit about um, the ways that. Uh, his kitchen is a place of, of hospitality and a place that, you know, there's there's elements of resistance. But I just wanted to I wanted to read this one section because I, I thought it was really beautiful and something that would really resonate with with our our audience. A true resistance worthy of the first advent would be a move into durable justice work the rest of the year. Imagine giving to, giving to a local food bank during Advent and then working on advocacy related to food insecurity and childhood hunger the rest of the year. Imagine learning about the realities around school lunch programs, how many need free or reduced price lunches in your local schools, whether quality meals are offered, and organizing your community to improve what is unoffered to kids. Imagine spending the year tackling the policies that create food deserts, which keep many neighborhoods undernourished. But there are many other possibilities, affordable housing, tenants' rights, fair wages, accessible health care and medications, or indigenous land rights. And I, I love the, the connection there. Uh, one, I, I just of, of, of food, but like the connection of advent being a kickoff to or larger movements for justice and i just i really appreciated that as sort of a having advent be more of a wake-up call having advent be more of a call to action than it typically is for us right and i think we hear about i i mean i've grown up um in the last set of years uh hearing about advent conspiracy it's kind of a Right. Um, and I remember the first time, oh, that's great. People are going to do some great things for Advent. But as my understanding of Advent grew um, because of Luke and Matthew and their, you know, their work, <laughs> I realized, oh, just having a, an Advent conspiracy campaign for the four or six weeks around Christmas, that's not what Advent was about. It was meant to change the way we think about the economy for the rest of our life, for the next generation, for, right. It was meant to start off a new trajectory for how we engage. And so, you know, in Burundi, we do, um, I mean, we do a lot of things in Burundi. My husband is a, is a social entrepreneur. <clears throat> He's an amazing man. But one of the things we, we, in a community up there, malnourishment is a huge thing. Um, over 60% of Burundian children suffer from malnourishment, mm. which affects both physical stunting and cognitive delays. And so we have a school up there and we realize that fortified porridge, actually, when you give a kid fortified porridge every morning, Oh my gosh, they doubled their weight in three months. Their eyesight gets better. Their attention span, their um, even energy to play in the playground. Like, wow, we realized how important. And so, you know, now here we are several years later and we have a factory that makes fortified porridge. And we get, we source all of the ingredients from local farmers. So we're helping the farmers by giving them a market for their sesame and their soja and their corn and their wheat. But, you know, then we're making the fortified porridge and we're now feeding over 28 communities of kids. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so it, for us, recognizing that this made a difference, it's like, oh, we, we can't just care about this one little community. How do we scale this up to care for more? And it's now become a huge part of what we do. Um, and I think that's more the idea is like, you know, yes, it's great to give to your local food bank or to support a feeding program, but but then how does that how does that become part of how we understand our engagement in our community long term? I think that's more the invitation of Advent. So, mm. and, you know, I'm also just struck what you said about like Advent should you know set the tone, kick us off. Is that in the liturgical year, Advent is actually the start of the year, right? <laughs> Which you know, it's not the start of the school year. It's not the start of the calendar year. Like. The last week of November, sometimes the first week of December is the start of the liturgical year because it is the start of Advent. And if you think of it in terms of, you know, if I'm thinking in terms of like a cycle and a season that, you know, it's, you know, it's July right now and we're recording this and I'm thinking about September and the start of the, the program year, right? In the church world and, and it's like, well, but if we take seriously our rhythms of, you know, the the spiritual rhythms and within the Christian tradition, the liturgical year is one that we can can think about. Advent sets the tone, right? Advent Mm -hmm. is actually, that's the, that's the January 1st, New Year's resolution. That's the Mm -hmm. vision for the program year. Like Advent is that. And so I just love you bringing forward all that Advent could or does or is is actually where it all begins and and that sets the the trajectory and then we get to do it every year because we forget and we get off track and we need to remember again like oh right this is what we're working for like this is what Mm -hmm. this is about i've been studying these texts year round for a couple years you know as you as you do when you're getting ready to write and one of the things that really struck me is that this is actually a perennial Advent is a perennial invitation, whether you're reading these Advent texts in August or you're reading them in January or you're reading them in March, no matter when I was reading, it spoke to the moment, to what was happening around me, to what was happening in Palestine, to what was happening in Burundi. And, you know, it made me realize that while these definitely, I think, are beautiful texts to begin, like you said, our liturgical year, they are texts that if we read them any time of the year, could better inform our our faith and our practice. Uh, so I wrote this whole book on Advent and never once mentioned the word Christmas. You will you will see it in one of the endorsements, but you won't see it anywhere in the text that I wrote because I want people to be able to, in theory, pick this book up any time of the year and recognize this message is for us all year round uh, to be invited into God's justice, God's idea of peace and to, to wrestle with hope and what that really looks like. Like this is an invitation all year round. There is an invitation to, to more fully engage with the, with the hard realities of the world around us, mm-hmm. understanding that, that, that was, that's the central message 
of Advent is God coming into the hard realities, not God, you know, spiriting us away from the hard realities, but God coming into the midst of them and being present in the midst of them and calling us to be present in the midst of them and to be be sources of compassion and justice. Um, And those hard realities include, right, food insecurity and um, essential workers and the ways in which they are treated justly or not. Like those are part of what we're invited. So even our our shared love for food invites us into caring. And I, I think this is what you are both working on is what does that justice look like in how we think about food and how we approach our kitchens and right that um, it's not disconnected um, from this thing that we love that nourishes us. And you're you're referring to the shepherds. The the, the there's a piece here we were talking about shepherds and really thinking of them as essential workers. And and it actually made me think of uh, another episode that we another conversation we had not too long ago with Gary Nabhan thinking hmm. about his his book around. Um, Fishers and farmers. Yes, and, I read that too. And, and, and I, I, I immediately, as I was reading that piece, my brain went there yeah. of like how much we need to be thinking about the 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 essential workers. You know, we we had this piece where we this time where we named them essential workers mm-hmm. who are getting getting the food to our tables, getting the food to our stores, and yet so many of them are are living in the worst possible conditions and and there's should be a call to action for us there to and 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 the fact that these essential workers are so important to the story of of knowing where christ is and 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 of declaring that 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 god has come into the world like what does that mean for us to see Mm -hmm. essential workers yeah i mean i i i thought that was a that was uh, sort of a beautiful, beautiful image. So I, I've I've had a, I've had the opportunity. I, I feel bad, Anna. I'm we were both supposed to get copies. <laughs> I, feel oh, bad. I haven't gotten my copy yet. And I, I feel I feel so bad that I. I, but I, I, can't I haven't wait. gotten my copy yet either. So, <laughs> so I am eagerly awaiting the, the opportunity to read. <laughs> I, I I for 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 Anna and for all of our listeners, like I, I would highly recommend this book. It's a it's beautifully written. Uh, I was telling Kelly, like it feels actually cinematic. It actually feels like you're you 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 feel like you're in those spaces. You can see the images that uh, again, both of current day Palestine and of of first century Palestine. It, it's mm-hmm. it's just really it's a very lovely book. Well, this has been such a delightful time, and I I am really looking forward to reading the book, and I've appreciated. Um, just your work and your your presence uh, in this conversation and in the broader conversation. And I feel a lot of hope from what I've heard from you, but I would love for you to answer the question that we ask all of our guests to answer, which is um, what gives you hope? And not that kind of hope that kind of covers up hard things, but the, the actual, maybe we could call it the Advent hope. <laughs> um, what, what brings you hope? Uh, this is actually a really difficult question that you put to us. <laughs> this is the one that I really spent some time thinking, what does give me hope? Uh, because I don't, you know, especially when we think about Advent and moving towards the holidays, there's this sense of magical, you know, hope with little, you know, the glittery filter. And yet the Advent stories give us this hard born hope, um, a hope that comes out of the hard 
traumatic spaces of um, of life, um, and and that really does inform my sense of of what hope is. And I, for me, I always connect lament and hope. You know that where where, where is the world hurting? Where where am I hurting? Or or connecting with that hurt in the world? And and I trust that there are the seeds of hope in those spaces. And I this morning was thinking about you know the gut, the rampant gun violence in our in our own communities, whether it's in Buffalo or in Uvalde. Um, I'm thinking of, you know, so geez, that, how can we not lament that violence? But where are the seeds of hope in that? You know, that's where I'm looking for hope. I'm looking to the hard part to say then, you know, spirit, show me where is the hope? Um, How do we redeem this, this wretchedly violent culture that we live in? I, I think about the malnourishment um, numbers that I just shared with you in Burundi and man, it's been, I think we've been doing fortified porridge for close to seven years now. And, you know, where the hope is that we have seen kids that would have died otherwise, you know, that are now running and healthy or are making their way towards health. Some of the newer communities. And I think, wow, but that was seven years of work. You know, like hope is not um, a quick hit. It is a marathon. It is, it is jumping in and saying, this malnourishment isn't, this is not right. No kid should, no kid should die before they're, well, Isaiah says no kid should die in a couple of days of being born. We need better health care and better nutrition in the new city. And so we've set about doing that work and, you know, seven years into doing porridge, you know, we're seeing kids survive. We're seeing them healthy. They're not going to the doctors as often as often they're, they're not missing school. They're, they're learning, they're growing. And I think, well, that's hopeful, you know, that we looked at something that was hard and and broken in Burundi and we put our, our, you know, our, our shoulder into it. And seven years later, we're seeing that it's getting better. There's still a huge mountain of malnourishment to deal with, but we're, we're, we're committed, man. We're in it. So, you know, I, I look at the hard places for the seeds of hope and then you just have to, you have to start doing, you have to start acting. Uh, this isn't wishful thinking. Isaiah doesn't tell us to dream of the new city. He tells us to get busy bringing about the new city. So I see glimpses of it in Burundi and I want to see more glimpses of it here. I don't know if that's not an easy answer, but when it comes to hope, I can't give really easy answers. And we're not really looking for easy answers. That's right. (laughs) I don't think it's actually really hope if it's it's an easy pat answer. It's a pseudo hope. That's That's not the real thing. That's right. And what we're interested in is the kind of hope that actually changes the world to be the one that we and I believe God longs for. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. Kelly, where can people connect with you and with your work? Um, Obviously, you'll have a book. Um, probably coming out around the time that we release this episode, but um, where can people connect with you and and other, other pieces that you may have written and things like that? I mean, I am on uh, Instagram most often, just sometimes it's, you know, shots of food. You won't be surprised. (laughs) Going to be a lot of preserved lemons because I'm (laughs) one of the fun things for Advent is I'm doing a kind of suggesting that we do preserving lemons as an alternative 
practice for Advent mm-hmm. uh, because it takes four weeks to preserve lemons. And yeah, so Man. anyways, that'll be up on my website, little videos if people want to learn how to do that and incorporate that into their Advent practice. Uh, so I do have you know a website which will have some resources related to Advent and the book. Uh, and that's just uh, kellynickundeha.com. Um, as I said, I'm on Instagram, I think knickundeha, uh with food and book related things and just, you know, being a mother of two teenagers, all those kind of daily things. Um, but those are the places where you'd find me the most. Fantastic. Well, Kelly, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your insight and your wisdom. Thank you for your lovely book. Um, and thank you for uh, sharing your love of food and your love of cooking with us. Uh, we're so glad to have you and hope that we get another chance to talk food with you again sometime soon. Sure. And I am so excited for your book. I know you're still in the manuscript phase, but I am so excited to read it and to to be a cheerleader uh, for your work as well. Thank you. We really appreciate that. Thank you for listening to the Food and Faith Podcast. Our collaborators are Wake Forest School of Divinity, Plain Song Farm, the Garden Church, and the Keep and Tell. Editing is by Derek Weston and music by Paul Deemer. Follow along and keep up to date with the podcast on Facebook at Food and Faith Podcast, Twitter and Instagram at Food and Faith Pod, or on our website at foodandfaithpodcast.org.